Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today as we delve into the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. My hope with this podcast and with all of these podcasts is that we will truly begin to to grasp Scripture, to understand more of what God is saying through His Word, and to get a realization for how all of these things fit together in the tapestry that makes up our Bible, but not just as a historical document, but also as God's Word for us today as well. Because as much as God was speaking to the people that originally received this text, He is also speaking to you and me today as his followers. So let's listen for his voice today as we study his word. And let's glean from it those things God has for us. Again, I thank you for joining us. Now join me as I pray and we begin our study. Heavenly Father, We do thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it through the ages. And Father, that it is not just a a dead historical document that we analyze. But Lord, it is your living word. It is your voice. It is the message of Christ spoken to us through the ages. That we may hear you. That we may be challenged in who we are that we may be convicted of our sin, corrected in our our wrong behavior, and straightened out in our mixed-up thinking. That we may know you and truly hear you. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we study it today, you would give us a mind that is sharp, that we will glean from it what you have, a heart that is sensitive to the promptings of your spirit as we study your word, and ears to hear what you have for us in this text. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, now we're going to start in with the second chapter of Romans. Now, I won't rehash the background. You can go back and listen to the previous podcast on the first chapter of Romans and get that. But I will reference repeatedly throughout this book that you had this split within the Roman church or the Christian church at Rome. You had those Jewish background believers that had, in, we think, many ways, um, come from the time of Pentecost. They were in Jerusalem for Pentecost and went back to Rome and started the church. And you had the Gentile believers that rose to authority in the church in Rome when the emperor had exiled the Jews out of the city of Rome for a period of time. Now they've all come back together, but there seems to be this definite Judaizer influence among the Jewish Christians. That is a kind of a, almost an ethnic salvation sort of viewpoint that if you're going to truly be a believer in Christ, you have to be a Jew. And if you're not ethnically a Jew, then you have to convert to Judaism and you have to follow the laws and the rituals. You have to be circumcised if you're a guy and you know all of these different aspects, if that's how you're going to truly please God. And almost like there's, there's two the rankings of believers. There are those that are the Jewish believers, and then there's the Gentile believers, and they're like second tier believers. 
you could see where this might cause some conflict in a church that is made up of both Gentile and Jewish Christians. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely a problem. And Paul was addressing some of these issues, and he wasn't addressing the politics of it. He wasn't addressing the the racial aspect of it, if you will. He simply laid into, look, this is the truth of God. Almost a challenge to say for both groups, figure out where you live in this truth, because this is what God says. This is how things work with the Lord. And you got to deal with it. That's probably an appropriate um, message for us today, I would think, especially in the modern Western world. Um, we need to hear that. We need to hear that reminder that it's not about our viewpoints. It's not about our politics. It's not about our opinions. It is about what God has said. And the challenge for each of us as believers is not to get our point across, but it is to be obedient to our master, to follow God with our lives, live for him. If we're living for our own opinions, we're living for our own voice to be heard all the time over the din of all the other voices. Are we really living to follow him? It's just something to chew on there. All right, let's dig in to the passages here. That's the framework. And today Paul is going to be dealing, really he's posing two uh, in, in the Greek literary form. It's called diatribe. They're, they're two discussions he's having with a hypothetical Jewish opponent um, and, and getting his point across by reflecting against what the standard Jewish view of these, these staunch Jewish um, Judaizer type of folks were. And so we're going to see a couple aspects of that. He's going to deal with the judgment of God and, and the law of God and what his judgment is based on. But we're also going to be looking at um, the covenant and specifically circumcision. And when I get to that, we'll discuss in greater detail why that had become so significant in Jewish society and culture by this point in time. So we'll, we'll get to that momentarily. Hang with me. Now in chapter one, we saw this framework where Paul was laying out that we are all accountable before God, that we are all condemned by our own sin, that God has been revealed through, if nothing else, through creation itself. His power and his divine qualities are, are evident and humanity across the board chose to worship the creation or aspects of the creation instead of the creator. And as a result, that led us to some very dark places, uh, to evil, to wickedness, to depraved behavior, to perversion and, and, and twisted values. And at a certain point, God allowed us to experience the weight of those decisions. Now we get to chapter two and he's saying, okay, here's the state of the world. Now he's going to deal with the Jews because he's in a certain regard, he's in the book of Romans, taking us through in broad strokes, Jewish history. There was humanity before the Jews were called out as a separate, distinct people and were given the guidance of the covenant, the, the law handed down on Mount Sinai. Um, that's all kind of taking place in their history. 
And so now we've transitioned from the state of all of humanity before God to the state of the Jews before God and, and building from there. So there's kind of this sub theme running of, of Jewish history running through this part of Romans. And that's not accidental. That's Paul's history. That's what he was steeped in. He was a Pharisee. He was a Sanhedrin. He was a, um, a Benjamite. He was, you know, all of these things. So he knew his stuff. He was a scholar into Jewish history and Jewish law. And so it's not accidental that we see these reflections of the, the ebb and flow of Jewish history in what he's writing to partially deal with the misconceptions or misunderstandings of the Jews in Rome. Well, let's get into the text. Chapter two, he says, you may think you can condemn such people. What such people? The ones we were talking about in the last chapter, the ones that were living depraved, the ones that were living in perversion, the ones that were living condemned by God and apart from God with no regard for God. He says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. So you think you can condemn them? You're doing the same stuff and you don't have an excuse is what he's telling them. He says, when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That's just the first four verses. You may say, well, Paul said a mouthful there. And, oh, I know what I get from that. I get from that. It says we're not supposed to judge anybody. No. Go back and read it. Go back and read every passage of Scripture in its context that people drag out and go, look, we're not supposed to judge. We're supposed to understand that the standard of God, the measure of Christ, is how we are to judge ourselves. It's how we will be judged, and it's how, within the community of faith, we should judge one another. But there's a simple reality out there. Those who are lost, those who do not know Christ, those who do not acknowledge God are lost, and they're going to live like they don't know Christ and like they don't acknowledge God. So don't get bent out of shape when lost sinners behave like, hmm, what's, what's, what's the descriptor I'm looking for here? Oh, I know, lost sinners. Don't get bent out of shape about that. That should be expected. The issue comes in with us who claim to know Christ. We need to live like it, not live like them. And Paul's complaint, and he's speaking specifically to the Jewish Christians at Rome, is you know this. You know there are all those outside a knowledge of God and that they stand condemned by their own behavior, their own action, their own twisted values and self-focus. He says, and, and, you think you can condemn them? 
because you want to judge them and go, oh, look at how horrible they are. Look at those bad decisions. Look at the bad things they do. And he said, the problem is you're doing it too. And you think you're exempt from God's judgment because you know better, but you're not doing better because you know better. And so he's really emphasizing that if we claim to know Christ, if we claim to follow him, if we claim to be in right relationship with God, that involves an active aspect on our parts. It's not a head knowledge. It's not a a name badge we can put on and go, oh, look, I'm a Christian or I'm a Jewish Christian or I'm a, you know, whatever we put on our name badge. It's that makes me right with God. So it doesn't matter that I do these other things. No, it matters because what you do is evidence of the state of your heart. So don't be foolish about it and understand you may, well, God hasn't, you know, God hasn't brought the punishment down on me. So he must be okay with this. No, he's being patient. He's giving you time to get straightened out. He's giving you time. Well, as scripture says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Now, mind you, that wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient in no way says that God doesn't have a problem with what you're doing when you are sinning. It does not say that. It does not imply that. It's saying that God is holding back his judgment because he's wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient. And he has a purpose in it. And that purpose is intended for you to turn from your sin. He's giving you time to wake up, to turn from your sin instead of just barreling forward. So because you're not seeing God's judgment rain down in your life, don't assume God doesn't care or that he is okay. In fact, just the opposite. He's not okay with it, and he cares immensely for you, and he's giving you time to change. Don't take advantage. Don't presume upon his kindness, his tolerance. Don't presume upon his patience. Make the most of the opportunity that's before you right now. Now, picking up in verse five, he goes on to say, but because you are stubborn. Now, remember, he's giving you time. Why? It's intended or his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins. And then five. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sins, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming. So we've gone from kindness, tolerance, and patience to you're storing up. And a terrible day of punishment is coming. There is a day of anger that is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble 
and calamity for everyone who keeps doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. What's he saying there? He's saying there's a day of judgment coming that his patience has a limit, that the the judgment that we deserve is being held off so that we can turn from our sin. But when the time runs out, whether we're talking individually, whether our time runs out, or whether we're talking, you know, all of creation, that great and terrible day of the Lord, the the day of Christ's return, that that day of judgment, that day is coming, be it individually or collectively, it's coming. And there we will be judged. And you may read that passage and go, well, it it sounds like we're going to be judged based on our behavior. Was it good or bad? Were we good enough? Were we bad enough? You know, is that how we're going to be judged? And I know it says behavior. I know it's speaks that way. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. That's verse six. You know, how can we nuance that? How could that not mean we're going to be judged based on what we've done? Read the rest of the book. We'll be studying through it. Hang with us through it. But when Paul talks about things like being judged according to what we have done, there is one thing we can do in Paul's assessment that makes all the difference. There is only one thing we can do in Paul's assessment that changes us from being objects of God's judgment to being objects of his eternal blessing. And that is to place our faith in in Christ, to accept that forgiveness for our sin that Christ purchased on the cross. And when we do that, our response to him and our response to to his love for us is to live a life desiring to please him. So our salvation results in the evidence of a life that is lived to please God. We can claim to have salvation, but not live to please God. And that says a whole lot about our claim to salvation. Basically, it says it's bogus. So Paul says, be sure your life measures up. And we're going to see that explained out as we go through the rest of the book of Romans. And Paul wrote this as one letter. We studied in chunks, but they would have read the whole shooting match. They would have gotten the entire message. So always take scripture in context. And I know if you take just these few verses out of context, you can end up in some pretty messed up places. But the reality is how we live our lives either is a life lived to please God or a life lived in rebellion to God. And if we know Christ is our Savior and Lord, if we have that forgiveness for our sin and a personal relationship with God, our response to him is going to be to live for him. And if we don't, it won't be. And judgment is coming. What's it going to look like for you? Which camp are you in and which one do you need to be in? And as he says twice there, either on the judgment or on the, the, the blessing side of things, the receiving of glory and honor and peace from God, um, 
first to the Jews, also to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Why does he rank them like that? Understand, he is including everyone because the world was divided from a Jewish perspective in the two camps. There were two types of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And you were either one or the other. So by Paul including both of those in there, he's saying it's everybody. It is inclusive. So don't read that and in some sort of twisted way think that becomes a, a dividing thing. Paul is speaking in very inclusive terms to the Jewish community there at the church at Rome and to all of us, really. In fact, not just Paul, it's God speaking through Paul to all of us. Verse 12 says, when the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. Well, that's a pretty profound statement, isn't it? Saying, look, when the Gentiles sin, they're going to be destroyed. Sin results in our destruction. That's what we earn. That, refer back to chapter one, read the whole thing. Our sin earns us that separation from God. It earns us destruction. Now, again, got to unpack that a little because folks will read that and go, oh, so hell isn't eternal and it's not eternal torment and punishment. It's destruction. It's annihilationism. You're sent to hell and, and then poof, you're gone. No, because of other scriptures that flesh that thought out. But what Paul is saying is all that is good, all that is, is hope will be destroyed, that all they have left is eternal punishment for their sin, for their rebellion against God. His point with all this, because the Jews wouldn't have needed that explained, okay? The guys he's talking to would not have needed the background. His point for them with all of this was, was this. When the Gentiles sin, they're going to be destroyed. Even though they never had God's written law. He's contrasting. He's, they're going to be punished. And they didn't even have the written law. Now he turns to the Jews. What do the Jews have? The written law. Yeah. This echoes the theme we saw back in verse one. You think you can condemn them. You're just as bad. Here he's saying they're going to be destroyed. And they didn't even have God's written law. Now you've got God's written law. What do you think's in store for you? Um, he's, he's making the point there. So let's keep reading the verse. It says, and the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. See, the Jews were thinking, oh, we're the covenant people. We have the covenant. So we're, we're God's chosen people. We've nailed it. We are right with God. And even the Jewish Christians at Rome were adopting that type of mentality. And Paul's saying, no, it's about whether you follow God or not. Are you obedient to him or not? Because the Gentiles that disobey God are going to face judgment. And they don't even have the law. You have the law. And you don't obey him. Having the law doesn't make you right with God. I go to hospitals sometimes. Not you know, for fun, but for work and necessity, but I can go to hospitals and I may sit in a room at a hospital 
And I know some medical terms. I've been around enough situations and, and all I've picked up some medical terminology and understand how to refer to certain things. Does that make me a doctor? In fact, these days with a global pandemic on, I might even be wearing a surgical mask. Does that make me a doctor? I know some of the terminology. I'm in the right place. I may be wearing part of the right uh, apparatus. And you're sitting there thinking, well, Scott, obviously that doesn't make you a doctor. And you would be absolutely correct in that. Why do we think that sitting in a church or knowing about God or knowing about the Bible makes us in right relationship with God? It doesn't. You have to know him. You have to know Christ as your Savior and Lord. Everything else, and I mean everything else, no matter how good you think it is, is nothing but window dressing on a sinking ship if you do not know Christ. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. By the way, Old Testament reference there, that God's covenant would be written in their hearts. That's Isaiah. Um, yeah. So Paul is quite possibly talking about the Gentile believers in the church at Rome here. He may be talking in a more general sense about conscience as a whole, but there's, I think there's good credence to saying he's referring specifically to the Gentile Christians here. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. And by their by secret there, he means hidden, our, our inner life, that life of our thought and, and who we are when no one else sees, which is who we really are, who we truly are before God, which is no secret to us and it's no secret to God. There's coming a day when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Now, do you want to be one of those people that has the law and maybe knows the law, but you don't let it affect the way you live? You don't live in obedience to it? Or do you want to be one of those people that has God's law written on their hearts, that can follow their own conscience and thoughts? And our conscience and thoughts, which we also understand as being shaped and driven by God's Holy Spirit, His presence in us, accuse us when we do wrong or tell us when we are doing right. Because that's where we need to be. Better yet, that's who we need to be. 
Now Paul's going to shift the discussion a little bit. That was the end of his first diatribe. Now we're into the second one. And this one, he's talking about the limitations of the covenant that the Jews had with God and the biggest symbol of that being circumcision. Now I said I would, I would unpack or explain a little more about circumcision in that day and age. And I'm not going to get into the mechanics of it. If you don't know what circumcision is, look it up because I don't want to explain it to you right now. But understand that it was a hallmark given to the Jews, even back to Abraham. It was something that made them distinct and different, set apart. At various times, it had various levels of significance within the Jewish community, not within God's law, but within the Jewish community as far as how well they practiced it and things of that nature. By the time you get to the intertestamental period, between the Old Testament and New Testament, particularly about the time of the Maccabean revolt or the time leading up to that. You had Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which was one of Alexander the Great's generals that took over that part of, of the Middle East, you know, or descendant of one of his generals, I guess. Um, about 200 to 160 BC, he did some horrible stuff. I mean, this is the dude that sacrificed a pig on the altar and in the temple in worship of Zeus and some things like that. He also outlawed the practice of circumcision among the Jews because he was quite literally trying to wipe out the Jews, not exterminate them, but eliminate that distinctive of religious identity and cultural identity so that they would just be part of the people and no longer distinctly Jewish. Um, and he felt he was, you know, straightening them out because they were ignorant backwoods people that didn't worship the pantheon of Greco Roman God. Well, Greco at this point, no Roman yet. Um, gods, it was messed up out of that came the Maccabean revolt. And after the Maccabean revolt, there was this, this deep, connection with Jewish identity. And one of the hallmarks of that Jewish identity was circumcision um, because it was specifically one of the things he tried to outlaw. So it became a, a badge, if you will, and, and very distinctive. And so the Jews, by the time we're dealing with Paul here, a couple hundred years later, it's a strong cultural identity. And it was seen as synonymous with being a good, devout, chosen one of God that you were circumcised for the guys. That's the framework, the, the background for these verses we're about to look at starting in 17. So let's dig in. In 17, you who call yourselves Jews and rely on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced you are a guide for the blind and a light for the people who are lost in darkness. And by the way, all those things are accurate descriptions of what the Jewish people were supposed to be. They were called to be separate people, set apart as a separate nation unto God, as, as a holy people, as a royal priesthood. Does this all sound familiar? You'll find it over in Peter. Peter uses the same terminology as the Old Testament covenant with the Jews describes them to describe all believers. 
You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. It's what they were supposed to be. Verse 20, you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Oh, he's setting them up there. Because here it comes. Verse 21, well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal. But do you steal? And by the way, the answer to that's yes, and we'll get to that in a minute. Do you say it is wrong to commit adultery? Let me try that in English. Do you say it is wrong to commit adultery? But do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry. But do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Oh, he's hitting them pretty hard there. He's saying, look, you have the law, but you don't follow the law. You'll proclaim the law to other people, but you don't do it. You say adultery is wrong, but you do it. You say stealing's wrong but you do it. You say worshiping false idols is wrong, but you take stuff from temples and you use it. Now, um, from some of the background I've read on this, that seems to have been an issue. And maybe it was in their minds justified that if the Jews needed resources as they were trekking around Rome, you know, they may have looked at stuff in pagan temples, shrines that were set up where where the the pagans might have left, um, you know, some metal object as an object of worship or whatnot. The Jew would go by and go, that little silver statue, that's not a god, but it's a piece of silver that they just left laying there in worship of their fake god. So, you know, what's it hurt if I take it? And they would take the silver and melt it down and use it as silver to purchase or whatever. That is both stealing and in their lives, that silver became an object of worship. Maybe it didn't represent that pagan deity that it was originally designed to. But in their own lives, it became something that they were going to focus their attention on and let determine their behavior. They were worshiping it instead of worshiping God. So, you know, whether it's stealing, idolatry, adultery, you name it, those it's not the exhaustive list, I'm sure, but he's making the point, hey, you you do all this, you you proclaim the law of God and yet you don't live it. And in so doing, that's why scriptures say that the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Because you say, this is God's standard, and then you go out and do something completely different. And they're going, yeah, God, sure. Because you're not showing them. Now, I am glad that Paul is bagging on them and not us, because, boy. Actually, doesn't this passage of Scripture convict us? Maybe I should just talk about me, but I'm going to extend it out to all of us as believers. 
as we sit here today, can we honestly look at our lives, evaluate our own behaviors, and not find some aspect that maybe we need to confess before God and change and repent of that isn't maybe pushing the lost world further away from God instead of drawing them, where we proclaim the name of Christ and yet behave in an ungodly fashion and thus lead those that don't know God to refuse to acknowledge God. We are supposed to be attractional people. We are supposed to be people who reflect the character, nature, and presence of God in such a way that it will draw others to him. We're not supposed to go out and drag people into the kingdom. In fact, we can't drag people into the kingdom. But over in John chapter 3, Jesus makes it clear that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. Are we lifting him up? The Jews were set apart. They were given a special relationship with God. They were given God's law that made it very clear what God's nature and character was. His holiness, his justness, his righteousness, and what it looked like. And they were supposed to be a light. They were supposed to show it to the rest of the world, to teach the rest of the world about the one true God. And they didn't. They just celebrated that they had the truth. But they did a horrible job of sharing it. We as believers, as new covenant, we've been given a special relationship and we have the truth and we've been given the task, not implied, flat out stated. We've been given the task to share that light, that truth with the world. Are we doing it? Are we doing it? All right, in verse 25, he goes on. He says, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision, I've already talked about the significance of that in that day and age, what it meant as far as Jewish identity. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. In other words, being circumcised, they would have seen that as that makes me a Jew. That makes me right with God. I'm a covenant person. I'm a, you know, however they saw it. But it made them right with God because they're his people, because they've been circumcised. And Paul is saying, look, if you have the physical attribute, circumcision, you go through that ceremony, but you do not obey God, then all you are is functionally an uncircumcised believer. I mean, um, excuse me, a circumcised unbeliever. It's important to get those words right. Yeah. You've been circumcised, but you're no better off than uncircumcised Gentiles, folks that don't even acknowledge God. What you've done physically to identify with a group of people 
has not made you right with God. He goes on in 26. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possessed God's law but didn't obey it. So he's saying, look, the way God sees it, it's not about whether you're circumcised or not. It's about the condition of your heart. Are you obedient to him? Are you following him or not? And you can have all the right physical attributes to look like you're in one camp or the other. But it's how you behave that makes the difference. It's how you live. Verse 28 and following really clears it up. He says this as he closes out his chapter. He says, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. So true circumcision isn't a thing that happens to your body, but rather it is a change that happens to your heart, and it happens by God's Spirit. So let me read that passage again. For you are not a true Jew because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through a ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God not from people. What's the evidence of truly having a changed heart before God? A desire to please God. A desire to receive His praise, not the praise of people. If your focus is what are people going to say, how are people going to respond to this, and your first question isn't, what will God say about this? How will God respond to this? Well, it said a lot about who you worship at that point. The people Paul's talking to, the people he's challenging in this chapter are the ones that think all the trappings are the important part. All the outward appearances are the important part. All the the lineage, the heritage, and the knowledge are the important part. And he's saying, you know, that stuff, that stuff means nothing unless there is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And if you have that change of heart produced by God's spirit, then really none of that other stuff matters. Do you live to please God or do you live to please people? Which one? I think there's a lot of challenge there for us today as believers. 
to hear those words, to take them to heart instead of going, yeah, but I'm not a first century Jewish person in Rome. Well, of course not. But how much of the truth of what Paul is declaring here about relationship with God describes our lives and our views? How much of it is God's word seeking to correct our hearts and our lives and bring us in conformity to God's will for us? I, for one, I want to live to please God, not people. I hope that's you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Again, as we read these words, we're convicted. As we read these words, we hear clearly what it is you desire from us. And you desire our hearts. You desire us to follow you with our lives, to live in such a way that it, it points to you, that it glorifies you. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to do that. That you would be the desire of our heart that we would not seek after the accolades of men, that we would not hold to, to traditions or, or, or names or descriptors that we think give us some sort of a, of a right relationship with you, but Father, that it would truly be the relationship with you that makes all the difference. Lord, help us to follow you with our lives, to live in response to your love by desiring to please you. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness and mercy that our salvation isn't based on the laws, but it's based on you. I thank you for your patience, your tolerance, and your kindness that you gave me opportunity to turn to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.